0: Another fascinating example of natural resources playing a just central role in the geopolitical landscape, this time Niger. I mean, reality resists easy answers. And when I see the commentary that comes out, understandably, I might add, from locals in Niger and in the whole region that frankly just wants France out of there. It's a complicated situation, but I don't know if I would say I would blame them. I mean, when France has riots in their streets, is Niger coming in and saying, hey, what's going on over here? We need to make sure you're being governed right. No. So I understand where these countries are coming from. I do wonder, though, if there is a misperception, perhaps, and I am just speculating out loud, as I like to do here, hello and welcome to the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pokabelli. I do wonder to myself, how much money are these guys really making off of these uranium mines? There is a sense, when you watch the videos, when you read the articles, that there's a sense that the local population, in, you know, in this case Niger, is not participating in the benefits of say the gold and the uranium that exists in the country, of the natural resources. But as anybody who's actually tried to invest in commodities knows it's not an easy trade and the money's not as easy as it sounds. And the mining industry, you know, is not an easy business. So I do wonder if the expectations are perhaps a little high of the wealth that could be incurred and maybe that the skimming off the top that France has taken And I wonder to myself, you know, and again, these are very complex matters. There are no easy answers. But is France being positioned as a kind of bogeyman? I was reading in a BBC article how the president who was removed from Niger, Mohamed Bazoum, was actually wanting to remove the military figure who ended up taking over. So... As I step back, one of the dynamics that I see in this situation is the French are being posed as the boogeyman in what could be a power struggle between the military and the government within Niger. Now, there is a whole other side to this, though, again, which resists the easy answers. Like, anybody offering you a simple black-and-white solution to this story is... I would argue, doing you a disservice. This is an incredibly complicated story because then we have the American situation where they weren't making too many noises from what I remember on Burkina Faso and Mali and the coups that were happening there, but apparently they have some major drone base in Niger, and now you have Victoria Nuland coming out and talking with them, trying to negotiate, interestingly, with... The coup leader in Niger, which brings it back to this idea, which actually goes all the way back to the Milesian dialogue in the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, right there in the first, you know, history that was done in a scientific way back in the Peloponnesian War, which can be directly applied here. Is the U.S. acting out of altruism and, you know, trying to spread democracy and concern for democracy? Or is this more of a play for of raw power cloaked in the garb of, well, we are out to promote democracies. uh, But one wonders, my sense is that this drone base in Niger is quite important. A lot of money has gone into it, and I think the money is secondary. It plays a very pivotal role in America's wielding of power within the African continent, particularly in West Africa, is my impression. Okay, so, and we're going to get to mining here in a second, but we have to set the table. So one wonders, just as in the Peloponnesian War, when the Athenians were telling the Milesians, you have to do what we say, and the Milesians were rightly pointing out, this is not about justice, this is about raw power. And again, this is sort of seen as a kind of early story of realpolitik, where this idea that you know, nations should be acting out of pure power rather than any sense of justice or altruism. So, as we step back, this is just to help us understand all these stories that we start seeing, which are kind of conflicting. You're not sure, okay, maybe I'm personally, I would like to see a democracy over in Niger, but at the same time, I see what is France doing there after all this time? Why are they using some variation of the franc, which is pegged? You know, they all speak French, and you're going, you know, maybe France should get out of there. So, you know, these are complicated issues, and then now the U.S. is negotiating. What is the U.S. doing there to begin with? And one other very important part of this as we go to the miners, which is super interesting as well, one other final piece of this puzzle as I create a very simple version of my understanding here as best I can is one of the reasons that we are seeing the locals support the military junta, which is you know a word, by the way, and it is with a, even though it's spelled with a J, it's pronounced H. I was looking it up today, so it's a junta, which is basically a military governance that often comes into being through a coup d'etat. And one of the interesting aspects of why these military governments are Not super unpopular, even though you probably don't want to be too loud with your dissent. So one reason they're not unpopular is because people can't say anything against it. Another issue is there have been a huge escalation in the number of terrorist attacks in this region. And interestingly, I think from a local perspective, there is so little trust in the West right now that they might even blame the west i would wager that a lot of those people on the street would even think that the west is responsible for a lot of the terrorism that's happening just to understand you know what are some of the reasons they might want france out that's how little trust there is i think again as we've mentioned with the ukraine war you know back in the iraq war it was sort of seen as an anomaly this kind of war of choice that happened with the U.S. and kind of like, okay, we had an administration go rogue and kind of being taken over by, you know, neoconservative ideology. But we seem to be seeing it again with Blinken and Victoria Nuland in Ukraine, which some people see as a war of choice, whatever the reality is. You know, and very, you know, prominent intellectuals like Jim Rickards have made this point very clearly, so it's not like some, you know, far out idea here. And so when people say the guy on the street in Niger sees what's happened in Ukraine and goes, okay, it's the Iraq war wasn't just some anomaly. This is how they act. They act out of pure power. It's back to the Milesian dialogue in the Peloponnesian War, where the Milesians are telling the Athenians, your whole, you know, claim of democracy and justice is just a facade. This is about pure power. This is about pure power. So that is the perception, I would argue. And the reason we care about the perception is because we want to be able to understand how people are thinking. And it doesn't mean we're dealing with the actual reality. Now, that being said, just to kind of outline what kind of seems to be happening here, And let's not forget, Russia had this big summit with a whole bunch of African leaders where the leader of Burkina Faso, there's a speech on YouTube, makes quite a plea for the people of Burkina Faso. And this is classic. I was looking up juntas and, you know, the nature of juntas and definitions. This is a classic move by junta, you know, military governments that they are doing it in the name of the people and in the national interest. And then you see just like, Exactly to the definition, you see the leader there of Burkina Faso with his, like, you know, very stylized beret making the case why Burkina Faso is doing what it's doing, which is why it's in its national interest. And this is about decolonization. And so this is why I'm bringing up the Peloponnesian War, because I think now in this information age, as ever before, but perhaps now more than ever, as J.G. Ballard, the great novelist would say, applying Freud, we have to dissect the manifest content of the situation to get to the latent content, employing Freud's dream work. That is basically part of what we need to do here. We have to decode the manifest content, the surface content, what we read, to try and get to the underlying latent content. We have to be psychoanalysts in and of ourselves to try and understand the reality. Because no one news source has all the information. We're getting speeches from everywhere. So we cannot assume everything is the truth, can we? And that's a self-evident. Now back to the miners. There was a little bit of a move in the uranium price, but there wasn't a huge amount. And it's kind of been overstated somewhat, it seems, the impact that this will have on France. I mean, one of the big kind of sensationalist headlines that came out very early on was Niger is cutting off all gold and uranium shipments to France. And then it sounds kind of dramatic, and it sounds like, oh, well, France, you know, most of its power comes from nuclear. Is France in trouble? Is France going to run out of power? But, you know, I was looking at people on Twitter saying, and who knows, just more stories, but the amount that France relies on Niger for uranium is actually quite small these days. It's actually diminished a significant amount. If I remember its maximum 20%, and it may have been as low as five percent. Like it was sort of like in the five to twenty percent range, trying to recall this tweet. So it's not gonna make or break France's, you know, electricity. And you saw it in the uranium price not even moving that much. It moved up a little bit. It was more the miners that actually had more action, which was kind of interesting. And of course, we recall from Tim Gitzel, you know the CEO of Cameco, that the uranium price is notoriously opaque, to use his words. So you may not even see much of a move in the short-term price at all. You know, we didn't see a major move. Now, one point that I've been wanting to get to before I discuss our feature content, just to kind of tie the bow on all this, is the role of the miners have become, I would say, extremely pragmatic in this region. I mean, Barrick is working in Mali. We were just talking to Fortuna Silver's CEO a few weeks ago, and they are also in Burkina Faso. And again, there has been a coup there. And I think there's this kind of very pragmatic, let's call it relationship, between the mining companies and these juntas. The relationship being... The juntas need the miners. There's a lot of expertise that's required here, and you don't just, you know, chase out Barrack Gold. Maybe you take a little bit more off the top. Maybe you try and negotiate a little more, but these miners actually have a fair degree of power. So there were two coups in Burkina Faso, one in January and one in September of 2022. Throughout this entire time, let me show you the headlines. For example, here, this one from Reuters, this is doing a search on mining.com, say, for Burkina Faso. Miners say operations unaffected following the secondary military coup of 2022. December 2022, Orzone Gold's Bomberi Mine in Burkina Faso enters commercial production. And there is the whole role of Russia in all this. And even, I mean, again, we talk about geopolitics, the Wagner Group, who, you know, apparently there are allegations that they've been given parts of a mine In Burkina Faso, I mean, this is a Reuters headline, Burkina Faso denies it pays Russian fighters with mine rights. Okay, December 2022. And you wonder how much help were the Russians giving, say, to these military coups? It's an open question. And again, it comes back to this whole thing of the manifest content versus the latent content, the surface versus the underlying content, the appearance versus the reality. And again, is Burkina Faso simply trying to achieve its statehood and sovereignty and get rid of colonial powers? Or is this actually just a power grab from the military? Is it a combination of both? I mean, one wonders when we look at the issue psychologically, is the military leaders probably believe in their own propaganda, that what they are doing is best for the country. Which, again, complicates the matter incredibly. All to say, you look at Burkina Faso, mining continues. February 2023, Reuters, Burkina Faso buys 200 kilograms of gold from Endeavor's Mana Mine. Now, in Mali, where they've also had coup, their mining revenue rose by 35% in 2022. Barrick says it'll continue to invest in lulo Gunkoto complex. So it kind of brings up for me, where does ESG stand in all this? And I'm not saying that the miners should necessarily pull out. I just think it harkens back to the complexity, the moral complexity of these coups. Because the reality on the ground, and Barrick probably makes this argument, although I don't know, maybe we should ask them. But the reality on the ground is, if Barak pulls out of Mali because of a coup, who suffers? Well, sure, the junta will suffer, but also probably a whole bunch of local people, a whole bunch of local businesses that rely on these miners. So as these miners continue to work in these places, very pragmatically, uh, you know, in these places that have suffered a coup d'etat, What does that do to your ESG rating, if anything? And I'm not sure something should be done. Again, I think it's incredibly complicated. On one hand, you know, is ESG related to democracy? And one would think it is, for example, right? But then if you pull out, then, you know, businesses die. So, final point on this whole very complex situation. Then there's ECOWAS, which I had never heard of until recently. This is kind of the economic, you know, multi-state, regional group of countries that helps oversee what started as an economic development, but has also had a security element. And these are the people who were threatening, actually, to go into Niger. And interestingly, the head of ECOWAS is actually the president of Nigeria right now. It's a rotating presidency of ECOWAS. So he's simultaneously managing ECOWAS and the Nigerian country as president of both these institutions. And interestingly, locally, I was reading in Nigeria, there is a pushback on the president of Nigeria, who is also president of ECOWAS, going in and attacking the military junta in Niger. And just a final point on this, the reason why Niger and Nigeria have similar names is because they were split up by colonial powers in the 19th century. So we see the legacy of colonialism continues here in a lot of these borders, just as we see in the Middle East. So a lot of this is coming home to roost. Because the argument that China and Russia are making, I mean, again, this is, Their propaganda, this is their, we might say, their story that they tell the world is this is about colonialism and that really, you know, China, you know, taking back Taiwan and not having the West tell it what to do is really just them removing their colonial masters. This is why it's such a passionate issue for them. Okay. So again, we always have to discern and separate, you know, the different narratives. There is the narrative to be told to the public, the nationalist narrative, versus the pure raw, you know, real politique narrative of just pure power. So all very interesting. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Colin McClellan, senior staff writer at the Northern Minor to this week's program. Colin visited several properties in Yukon, and it was fascinating to just get a sense of what was happening, and it's such an interesting contrast with Western editor Henry Lazenby in Nevada, over at Tanopa, Nevada, last week. I mean, it's, you see, there is excitement, but it's not of the same kind of boom kind that you're seeing in Nevada. And that may be a result of infrastructure, partially. It is quite remote up there, as we're learning with Colin. So a fascinating interview coming up. And finally, for those that like to network, and for those that like to see great speeches, the Canadian Mining Symposium is happening October 12th and 13th in London, England, Simply go to events.northernminer.com and you will find an opportunity to get a ticket, an opportunity to sponsor. I believe there are still opportunities, but there may not be many left. And of course, Robert Friedland's going to be there and many, many other speakers. It should be an excellent time. I will be there and it should be great. If you want to find us online, you can visit northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. Turning to the website, Caterpillar soars to record as profit beat LA's slowdown fears. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Caterpillar, and of course, Caterpillar creates... uh, A huge amount of mining equipment, shares soared to a record after the company defied concerns of a global economic slowdown by reporting a bigger-than-expected profit and resilient demand for its iconic yellow machinery. Its stock rose as much as 8% Tuesday after the heavy machinery maker posted earnings and revenue that both exceeded the highest analyst estimates in a Bloomberg survey. Caterpillar is viewed as a bellwether for the global economy, and its earnings report comes as economists worry about slowing growth from the Americas to Europe and Asia. The company reported stronger sales from construction to mining and energy. And maybe that's the real takeaway here. As the global economy slows down, mining and energy are doing just fine. Not terrible places to be, as I keep saying. Sales rose across most regions. And while it cautioned on weakening conditions in China, the country normally only accounts for about 5% to 10% of overall revenue. And we have a quote here from CEO Jim Umpleby, who said, quote, Our results continue to reflect healthy demand across most end markets for our products and services. It was another strong quarter. And finally, Matt Arnold, an analyst at Edward Jones & Co., said in a phone interview, Quote, Investors are looking for cracks, and there were no cracks revealed. Going into the quarter, I think most investors across the machinery space were perhaps worried demand could show signs of cooling. And another quote here from CEO Umpleby, We continue to see improvement in the supply chain, which allowed us to increase production in the quarter. However, areas of challenge remain, particularly for large engines, which impacts energy and transportation and some of our larger machines. So... Caterpillar doing well, which is, as they say, a a bellwether for the global economy, but really a bellwether for the mining industry in particular. And maybe what you're starting to see is good times in mining. So interesting headline there. Continuing on, U.S. Department of Energy adds copper to critical minerals list, and this is a staff writer at Mining.com. The U.S. Department of Energy this week officially added copper to its critical materials list, making the first time a U.S. government agency has included copper on one of its official critical lists, following the examples of the European Union, Japan, India, Canada, and China. 2023 Critical Materials Assessment, which evaluated materials for their criticality to global clean energy technology supply chains, Focuses on key materials with high risk of supply disruption that are integral to clean energy technologies. And here's the final list, actually, from the Department of Energy. And companies that produce these metals have eligibility for tax credits under the Inflation Reduction Act. The final list includes aluminum, cobalt, copper, dysprosium, electrical steel, fluorine, gallium, iridium, lithium, magnesium, natural graphite, neodymium, nickel. Platinum, prazodymium, terbium, silicon, and silicon carbide. Quite a bit of rare earths in there. So copper has been added. Continuing on. So Chile reported another month where copper exports were kind of low. Chile copper recovery remains elusive as July exports drop. This is Bloomberg News, just a very short two-paragraph article. Via mining.com. Hopes of a sustained recovery in Chilean copper shipments are fading. After the biggest producing nation saw July exports come in at the lowest level since January, revenue from shipments last month slumped 13% from June levels, despite slightly higher prices for the metal. That suggests Chilean operators continue to endure project delays and mine-specific setbacks that have restrained production for the past year and a half. So this is a story we've also been watching. Along with the copper price, let me actually bring up the LME. I mean, this is a whole other interesting... Situation here: China has very low copper inventories, whereas the LME is almost back to where it was, you know, a couple of months ago when things didn't look so bad. Before there was that massive delivery that took place on the LME, we are almost back to I think eighty thousand on the LME, eighty thousand tons of copper, and they're all available. Opening stock seventy nine thousand three hundred twenty five tons. And live warrants are 78,950. So almost all of that 79,000 tons of copper are available. Only 375 canceled warrants. So they're basically in pretty good shape compared to where they were only a few weeks ago on the LME. But I was reading in China, they're at like a critical level now. So it's interesting to see this kind of back and forth. I was calling it a developing story as it was happening because the drop downs were so substantial and the surprise on the part of the people that really watch this stuff of the amount that was being taken for delivery, and you know, not just one, but two or three massive deliveries. You know, I think the takeaway for me of this whole endeavor, because I feel like it's kind of somewhat I don't feel like it's totally resolved this story, because now we're hearing it out of China that they're at a critical level, but I think the takeaway is just how quickly these stocks can be depleted. It doesn't mean they're going to be and maybe everything just stays fine, but I think it shows a kind of fragility in the system. It was like at a orange to red alert before. I think we'd call it a yellow alert now. I wouldn't call it the same kind of urgency, but I think the takeaway is this can flare up at any point. Because still historically, I believe 80,000 is still quite low historically. So continuing on with Cadelco, we have another story. This is Bloomberg News. So Cadelco is a major miner in Chile, the government miner. Cadelco sees copper output bottoming out with recovery in sight so that the copper output is going to start recovering here. Codelco's surprisingly steep drop in copper production this year will be as bad as it gets for the world's biggest producer of the red metal, according to chairman Maximo Pacheco. Quote, we will be better, Pacheco said in an interview. Quote, the projection from here is that we start to go up. So there's a lot of pressure on Cadelco to produce and on Chile to produce copper. They are the world's biggest copper producer. And so it's a major part of their revenue Uh, Let's continue on the story here. He spoke on the sidelines of an industry breakfast in Santiago on Wednesday, just days after the state-owned behemoth reduced its annual production guidance to the lowest in 25 years and raised cost estimates in the wake of another disappointing quarter. The output decline has accelerated due to project delays and mishaps at mines. And Pacheco was saying those project delays are due to execution rather than a lack of funding. But here is the key part, if you ask me. As ore grades decline, the copper industry is finding it harder and costlier to develop new deposits amid supply chain disruptions, inflation, and construction bottlenecks. And now you can even see the pivot to lithium. Finally, Codelco is also set to become a major player in lithium after Chile's president, Gabriel Boric, assigned the company to represent the state in a new public-private participation model. Pacheco said talks with Chile's biggest lithium producer, SQM, are advancing ahead of a targeted deal by the end of the year. This next story I thought was quite interesting, and there's some very interesting input in it. Goldman Commodities Research Chief Jeff Curry set to leave. So well-known, you know, head of commodities, Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs is set to leave Bloomberg News via Mining.com Jeff Curry, the prominent commodities analyst known for making bold, often bullish pronouncements, is leaving Goldman Sachs Group. Curry has been the face of the Wall Street titans' commodities research for the better part of three decades, commanding attention in that market with a willingness to stick his neck out on calls with mixed success. Goldman announced his departure in a memo to staff on Monday. Curry doesn't plan to take on another job immediately, and the bank won't have a new head for his group. Instead, Dan Straven, Sam Dart, and Nick Snowden, who are responsible for oil, natural gas, and metals research, respectively, will help co-lead it. Curry rose to fame after correctly predicting the China-driven boom of the 2000s and that decade's surge in oil prices. He has had less luck repeating the feat after outlining reasons for another super cycle that could last a decade. Rather than a sustained increase, prices have gyrated. Quote, We have never been this wrong for this long without seeing evidence to change our views. End quote. The 56-year-old said on Bloomberg Television in June, shortly before trimming an oil price forecast. So that was quite an interesting quote there. We have never been this wrong for this long without seeing evidence to change our views. Quite fascinating. Of course, Curry is a massive commodities bull, suggesting, as I often repeat here, that you know, copper could pull an oil when oil was at $10 a barrel and went all the way up to $150 a barrel. Equally bullish on copper from Jeff Curry, but he is now moving on. Continuing on, Barrick prepares to restart Pergara gold mine in Papua New Guinea. So we have followed this for a while. So Mark Bristow, the CEO's diplomacy skills are paying off as they plan to restart the Pergera gold mine in Papua New Guinea. Continuing on. This is Reuters via mining.com. U.S. discussed creative ways to help landlocked Mongolia export rare earths. So they're starting to open up a way to get rare earths out of Mongolia, which I found kind of interesting because, of course, the issue with rare earths, from my understanding, is not so much the extraction, but the processing. And it kind of makes me wonder... Is the U.S. simply trying to get Mongolia to process the rare earths over in Mongolia? I don't know. And maybe it's actually more complicated. Maybe there are certain rare earths that the U.S. wants that are maybe over in Mongolia. Maybe that's the actual issue. Hard to say, but interesting meeting with Kamala Harris, the vice president there, showing the importance of these resources. A couple more here, Rio Tinto looking at possible lithium deals, Stausholm says, so that is the CEO of Rio Tinto is now saying they are looking into lithium, so sounded not overly committal, quote, I wouldn't mind having lithium production in Canada, uh, noting that it was a pretty hot market and that he was, quote, reluctant to come out with too big of a check. So just paying attention, it sounds like, to lithium in case deals arise. And also another oil company is showing interest in lithium. Oil driller Pioneer is trying to mine lithium from dirty fracking water. This is Bloomberg News. And just the first line here, Pioneer Natural Resources, one of the largest U.S. shale drillers, is experimenting with mining lithium from wastewater produced in the fracking process. So a lot of creativity out of the U.S. on how to extract lithium. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year bond and it has fallen. Quite dramatically here, it is now at 4% after being at, I think, 4.1% yesterday. That is the U.S. 10-year bond. And last week, though, it was at 3.965%. So interesting volatility in the bond market. U.K. 10-year is at 4.355 after being, yeah, it was at 4.45 just yesterday. People were starting to get bearish on the stock market with high yields in the bond market, particularly with sovereigns like the US and the UK. We are still above 4% though, I might add, on the US tenure turning to gold. Gold is trading at $1,936.90 per ounce. That is $19 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $23.40 per ounce. That is 94 cents lower. Then last week, platinum is trading $31 lower at $922.24 per ounce. And palladium is also trading lower at $1,237.53 per ounce. That is $44 lower than last week. Turning to industrial metals, copper is also down at $3.82 per pound. That is 18 cents lower than last week. Iron ore also lower at $104.73 per metric ton. That is $8 lower than last week. Aluminum is $0.03 lower at $1.01 per pound. Lead is $0.02 lower at $0.96 per pound. Nickel is back below $10 at $9.56 per pound. That is $0.46 lower than last week. Tin is at $12.57 per pound. That is $0.47 lower. Then last week, cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound, and lithium is down a dollar at $36.79 per pound, so quite low. With lithium, it went as low as $24.93, though, about four months ago, but still remarkably low compared to where it's been in the past. Uranium is at $56.25 per pound. That is 10 cents higher. So barely any movement in uranium and zinc is 3 cents lower at $1.13 per pound. So almost across the board, with the exception of uranium and cobalt, metals are lower. You know, so one wonders, people started getting kind of bearish last week with the high yields so if I had to attribute a cause, I would say there is a bit of a risk-off trade in the market. The DXY, the dollar, is up a little bit on the week as well. And so that appears to be the situation. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Colin McClellan, senior staff writer at the Northern Miner, to the Northern Miner podcast for the very first time. And he offers a very fascinating view of what is happening in Yukon. You know, all of the challenges and all of the excitement that is taking place in that very beautiful part of the world. So I hope you find this insightful and I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast, Colin McClellan, Senior Staff Writer at the Northern Miner. Colin, welcome to the show. Hi, Adrian.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Just back from from Yukon, where I did some
0: tours. I've seen your name on several articles up until this point, so it's great to meet you over the screen, so to speak. So you did just, in fact, do some visiting in the Yukon. You did some site visits. And so I thought we'd check in with you and see how that went. So tell us, uh, how was your trip? How did everything go?
1: Well, it was fantastic. You know, I'd never been that far north. You know, I think I went skiing at Whistler a few times, you know, in the mountains, but never as far north as the Yukon. Simply fantastic. I can't speak highly enough about it. Flew up from Vancouver to Whitehorse, and then we spent a day or so there getting all ready. And then... Most of the trip, which lasted a week, we went up to Dawson. That was kind of our home base. And of course, this is the town in 1898 that had the historic gold rush. Everybody poured in from all over the world, trying to get into this remote area that probably they'd never heard of before. So Dawson, quaint town, still a lot like it was, you know, 125 years ago in some ways. There's still dirt roads there. The storefronts are still similar with the paint jobs and this and that. A lovely place to hang out. And, of course, you know, the kind of weird thing is, of course, you go that far north in the summer and the sun apparently never sets, you know, maybe 1.32 in the morning, it seems like. And it gives you this kind of alien feeling. You come out of the restaurant or the bar and it's still light. It's like, oh, wow, we still got time to go. But, you know, you look at your watch and you learn to tell the time, I guess, a bit from the sun and how it dips. And, you know, you got to retire and start it all over again in this quaint town. And like I said, we use that as a kind of our base. And so we would fly to these projects that maybe 100, 200 kilometers away from Dawson and the bush pilots. You know, uh, we saw some forest fires here and there. Not too much turbulence, but, you know, exciting. And then when you land, maybe it's a helicopter ride to go around the project or the mine or whatever's happening And those can be kind of fun, and uh, you're skirting around the edges of some of these. They're not quite mountains, but uh, it still looks pretty striking when you're above them. And so, uh, you know, I think I found a few takeaways from the week there. One of them, I guess, one of the main things is of the Tombstone Gold Belt. Now, this is an, an area region that kind of arcs north from the B.C. Northwest Territories border, goes up along there for a couple hundred kilometers, and then it strikes west, sweeping across the territory, through Dawson and on into Alaska, where you have maybe the Kinross gold mine there, Fort Knox. Now, way back on the east side of it, towards the east end of the uh, Yukon, near the Northwest Territories. You have a bunch of projects starting near there with a Snowline Gold. Now, they're the, one of the investor darlings of the conference. Uh, they've done very well. A $19 billion investment from B2 Gold and a, a share price that's skyrocketed in recent months. I think I calculated at one point it jumped 81% since the end of May. A lot of interest in them. A whole bunch of other companies like Sabre Gold, St. James Gold. Uh, of course, we've got Victoria Gold. It's the only working hard rock mine in the Yukon with Eagle Mine there, Heap Leach Mine. And nearby, we've got Banyan Gold, another a junior miner with the project it's trying to advance called OR Mac. That's A-U-R-M-A-C, OR Mac. And it's got a a bunch of deposits on that. We'll talk about that in a bit. So you've got this Tombstone Gold Belt. One of the takeaways, definitely a surging gold zone in the Yukon. Very exciting. Everybody's upbeat on it. But there's a bit of concern because it seems like Snowline Gold, maybe takeaway number two, Snowline Gold is sucking all all the oxygen out for investors with you know the big name b2 gold investing there 19
0: billion dollars sorry is billion not- or, or 19 million
1: sorry yeah so that company has no resource no roads and no power and then you put it up against some of these other companies sitka gold banyan gold uh they've got projects with uh you know power and roads to their door but they can't seem to get a look in from from retail investors and so there's um Maybe takeaway number two is, you know, there's some concern that it's a tough market for most juniors still, even though they've got good resource and strong drill results.
0: By a, It's a difficult market, meaning they are lacking investment and the financing that they need. Is that what you mean?
1: They feel they're undervalued. They feel they've got good resources and strong drill results, and they're just got getting the respect that they deserve in the market. Interesting that's kind of like a uh, takeaway number three that, that many of the juniors are undervalued, you know, sick of gold there. You've got to visible, it's got visible gold and assays. It's got 1.3 million inferred ounces in a resource and a road rate right to the site. It's only a hundred kilometers East of Dawson. You've got Banyan, which is next to Hecla silver, it's a similar situation with power and road rate right to it. It's got uh, 313 million ounces Creating 0.7 grams for uh, 6.2 million inferred ounces. Three deposits there, Powerline at 3.4 million ounces, Orex Hill at 1.4 million ounces, and Airstrip at around 900,000 ounces. It's located nearby Victoria and its uh, Eagle gold mine there. Uh, One of the interesting things there is that uh, this president's and CEO's uh, Victoria and Banyan, her husband and wife team and himself, uh, John McConnell and Tara Christie. Tara Christie heads up Banyan and John McConnell heads up Victoria. So uh, must be interesting uh, home life there over the kitchen table, perhaps. <laughs> uh, uh, joint CEOs, the Yukon Power Couple, controlling some of the most exciting uh, properties in the territory.
0: Interesting. There's so much that you said there. I mean, it sounds, first of all, quite remote. I mean, when you describe the sun not really setting, uh, that is quite surreal. It just makes you think of some sort of novel or something, you know, like you're going to a, a remote part of the earth when the sun doesn't start to set. How did you get around? Were Were you saying like helicopter, like just by going from each project? How, how do you get around?
1: Well, like I was saying, there's, uh, you know, you're getting in maybe a nine seater, 10 seater uh, bush plane, twin engine uh, plane to jump around the territory, go from uh, Dawson out to the the different projects. And then maybe when you land at the project, you'll get into a helicopter for a more sort of closer up look at the resource or the project uh, that is, uh, you know, that you're visiting that day. So, you know, the, you're bending and twisting around the helicopter to get a good look and everything to make sure everybody can see out the windows and such forth and people want to shoot video. And it's kind of exciting in a way you got it. Uh, uh, get used to that if you don't like flying i don't know it, not the place for you that's definitely how you get around i mean there's there's government roads and things but uh, nothing's really paved you see because the cold and the frost you know kind of destroys a lot of the paved roads so they don't really do that it's you know it's hard packed and then in the winter of course the snow packs it down and i had people saying to me it's actually easier to drive in the winter because the roads are so much smoother.
0: Fascinating. So I would think it would be a lot cheaper to sort of drive around. I mean, is part of the issue with these valuations, you think, is it a bit of an infrastructure issue at the end of the day, like where, you know, if you have dirt roads and there's they're not paved, surely that affects the valuation?
1: Perhaps, yeah. I mean, they all live with this, the fact that the roads aren't going to be paved, the major roads, you know, there's some highways, you know. There's one, you know, the major highway connecting some of the areas that that is, you know, you got your Alaskan Highway, which actually goes a large part of it through the Yukon, right? So there's that. But infrastructure is a big, uh, you know, question mark for some of the projects. You know, uh, I think one of the – another takeaway uh, from the whole visit was how, you know, Snowline seems to defeat – Concerns about infrastructure because its grades are strong. Just pull up some numbers here. I think, you know, their rogue property at uh, the, the valley target, you know, it's it's showing uh, 318 meters at 2.55 grams, including 108 meters at 4.14 grams. So this is quite a bit higher than most other projects in the territory right now. You got Victoria and Banyan, which are around 0. 0.6. 0.7 uh, gram per ton. And so this is really showing how, you know, grade is driving investors to sort of like if the grade is there, they will build it some kind of reverse of a field of dreams, you know, if, if it's, <laughs> if it's there, they will build it. And, you know, also it's got the Einerson property next door to Rogue, uh, Snowline does, and it's Jupiter Discovery there. It's even kind of stronger grades. They're shorter cores. It's like, you know, 5.5 meters, but uh, 5.15 grams or 13 meters at 3.45 grams or 6 meters at 13.9 grams. Some high grades there uh, with snowline. that's really attracting a lot of interest.
0: So we were just talking to Henry Lazenby last week. And there was a sense that in Tonopah, Nevada, where he was visiting, that basically I think it was BlackRock Silver, if I'm not mistaken, started the rediscovery of this district and that other companies kind of saw the vision and started developing there. Is that the sense you get where you were? Another way of framing this question is, why hasn't this been developed earlier, for example, if the grades are so good? Have they never drilled there before? What's the deal?
1: Well, you know, the way it's been related to me is like the territory is so underexplored that the remoteness the difficulty of getting around you know places around dawson itself you know the legacy of the gold rush from 1898 people are still mining those creeks if you can believe it now that's placer mining it's different than hard rock mining right you're going into the into the riverbed and you're trying to get it out you know using modern technology gigantic bulldozers and, and and haulers and stuff like that so it's all kind of modern but you up in the air and you're over Dawson and and you see all these patches, you know, where the creeks were that harken back to 125 years ago. One of the, the visits that we did was um, with uh, Parker Schnabel. He's the star of the reality TV show Gold Rush. He's an Alaskan who's come over to the Yukon and he's the most successful uh, placer miner on this TV show for more than a decade. And, you know, a really interesting guy down to earth, but super quick. A great interview. We had a fun time at his uh, Dominion Creek uh, Placer camp, you know, when he was telling about how they're going to mine 40 to 50,000 ounces, you know, in this stretch, you know, over to this hill. And he's working with uh, metallic minerals He's going to pay them a, a license to be able to mine it. And he gets a lot of action. He, he finds that people have these claims, but they don't have the wherewithal, the skill, or or the scope to mine these. And people are calling him up, okay, can you can you mine my area? So he's got projects lined up. And this next one for Metallic, it's, he's going to do it on Australia Creek. Now, if I did a bit of reading before I went to the Yukon, I had to pick up Pierre Burton, you know, the legendary. The, of course author, uh, Pierre Burton, his uh, story, Klondike, you know, about the gold rush. And uh, going back, you know, Australia Creek, which Metallic Minerals and Schnabel are interested in in there, uh, it only gets one mention in the book, but it's fascinating. Uh, It's the place where Robert Henderson, who was one of the co-discoverers of the big rush in 18, I guess he would have uh, made the discovery in 1896, perhaps, in the the creek, uh, Gold Bottom Creek. Well, just before he went over and found that, he was laid up for two weeks on Australia Creek because he'd pierced his thigh on a broken tree branch. And he, he was only able to sort of hobble over the hill two weeks later. And that's, you know, when he made his big discovery. And that's the only mention of Australia Creek in Pierre Burton's book. The creek was never mined actually because it actually became more valuable as a source of water and hydropower. So mm. Metallic and Schnabel are sitting on this kind of, I wouldn't say it's pristine or virgin, but here's a creek that got you know minimal mining. It had maybe some dredging on it, not a lot, you know, in the hundred and twenty-five years since the big rush. So this could be, you know, quite interesting for them. And they also Schnabel and his main project is on Dominion Creek. In that course that got a fair bit of mining uh, back in the day but you know he's a successful operation there going great gangbusters and uh, metallic also has uh, some claims on the same creek that uh, maybe that uh, Schnabel will eventually get to i don't know that maybe they don't have a deal with that one yet but we'll see so back to your question why has it all been developed i just think there's so much around dawson it has occupied a lot of people and eventually, you know, they're branching out, but the territory is underexplored. And, uh, you know, that the, one of the problems with the Yukon is that the, the season is so short, right? To get on the ground and you're not really on the ground maybe till late May or whatever. And then, you know, there's snow around the corner in September, maybe. So it's a short season to be exploring.
0: It doesn't sound easy i mean it sounds like it's hard to get up there it's hard probably just you know i guess you take a plane to dawson but then from there i mean you're really going into a frontier of sorts and just to get there is probably a challenge as you're kind of describing and then all of a sudden you're going to start mining i mean that sounds pretty challenging
1: definitely a challenge um i think you know we're so very lucky today with the airplanes and everything and, and the Alaskan Highway and all that. So, you know, a lot of tourists do make the trek north. You know, we see them at this week that we were there. It was probably the warmest week in the Yukon during the year, you know, late July, right? A lot of motorcyclists, a lot of RVs, people are making the trip considerably different than, you know, the 20,000, 30,000 or so who swelled Dawson 125 years ago to make it the largest town you know west of Toronto depending on when you count and how you count you know at the time and these people you know had to slog through mountain passes you know were littered with the the corpses of horses and and trying a dog sled and these, these people were some of them were white collar people from St. Louis or something you know and they got the gold bug and they went through yeah. everything to get there, sold all their stuff, bought all this gear they didn't know they needed. And then when they got there, maybe it took them a year or more to get there. Well, of course, all the claims, all the good claims are gone. And some of them, you know, just kind of turned around on their heels and went back. It's like it was enough that they'd made it, but they hadn't actually made anything of it. But... They'd made this journey, and I guess they maybe proved to themselves that they could do it. So, yeah, remote place in its in history, and and still today, sure, but c- certainly a frontier that, uh, with this booming tombstone, uh, gold belt, that uh, many companies are thinking are worth is a worthwhile investment.
0: Well, especially as jurisdiction becomes more and more of an issue, seemingly on a daily basis here. Did you get a sense of how many people were in Dawson and just the overall sentiment? Like in Tanopa, where Henry was, there was a sense that, you know, boom times were coming, even though it's like only a population of 3,000 people. He was saying, you know, is there a sense of boom times coming or would that be a little premature?
1: It might be a bit premature. Like I said, we've got this one project that's really standing out to a lot of investors, Snowline. And we've got a lot of other, you know, we've got interest and we've got uh, work hard work that's been done by people like Sitka and Banyan and you know we got Sabre gold we've got St James gold you know developing these projects there's activity sure and there's businesses happening you know I think there's going to be you know a phase where you know maybe there's going to be some you know deals that happen you know banyan's developing this, Promising project It's next to an existing gold mine. Tara Christie, the CEO, president of Banyan, you know, puts it like at a a one-quarter chance that it's Victoria or nearby the neighbor Hecla Silver will buy them. Or maybe it's a one-quarter chance that somebody else entirely new will come in and, and buy Banyan. Or maybe someone will come in and buy both Victoria and Banyan at the same time for big wallop you know, get an existing mine and then a project to develop, maybe defeat it or whatever. Okay. The chance of building it alone, maybe maybe that's just uh, 5%, she says, just because they're, they're, there's, there's interest.
0: Fascinating. So just as we wrap up here then, it might be a lot to put into one question in this final question, so feel free to take it wherever you want. But in terms of the First Nations, in terms of the government, what was your sense there? Was there a sense that First Nations were, do they have, are there claims and are they working with these companies or is that still too early? And I guess the government side, was there a sense that they were helping? I guess I'm trying to get at the obstacles that might exist for moving these projects forward.
1: The sense I got was that the Yukon government is very proactive with First Nations relations and it's very strong. And uh, I didn't hear any reports of, you know, disputes or things that hadn't been worked out properly. There's a new process with environmental approvals that's been brought in um, more recently. It seems to have a lot of support. Uh, Tara Christie, who sat on the Environmental Assessment Board for a dozen years, is very supportive of the process and understands how it works. And I think all uh, uh, groups there are keen to support uh, impact benefits uh, agreements with First Nation groups now these don't necessarily happen at the exploration stage uh, most of the first nations groups prefer to wait until you know uh, the projects are more advanced so they see you know exactly what's happening uh, before you know entering into an, an impact benefit agreement but uh, the relations are quite strong and uh, I, I believe it's probably you know uh, a great place uh, to move forward on, on projects with first nations now you know, the population of Yukon is only 40,000 or so. So um, some of the First Nations leaders are kind of taxed in their, you know, skills and abilities and how they can spread them around to the community with their own jobs and then being involved with, you know, mining projects. So maybe that's kind of one one issue there that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a fair bit of interest in the population is, is not, you know, huge, only 40,000 people.
0: Well, any final thoughts for us, Colin, as we wrap up here?
1: Well, I didn't talk about uh, one of the other projects that I did visit, uh, which was uh, Western Copper and Gold. And they've got uh, a project that's south of Dawson. Uh, It's not on that uh, Tombstone Gold Belt. It's about, uh, what, 380 kilometers northwest of Whitehorse or so. But uh, it's got uh, Rio Tinto backing it uh, with 8%. It's, uh, you know the largest critical minerals project in Canada based on its copper and uh, molybdenum uh, potential production 40% 46% copper uh, 34% gold you know maybe 14.8 million ounces measured and indicated of gold and 7.6 billion pounds of measured and indicated copper so uh, a huge project there that uh, it's coming down to crunch uh, Rio Tinto has until November to make a, an investment decision. So there's definitely going to be some news on that. It looks like I don't uh, meeting with the CEO and touring the site by helicopter and such forth looks all like if everything's uh, going forward. Uh, one of the concerns they do have is the First Nations, issue is that the road access, the First Nations are concerned that the road access remain private during and after the mine just because uh, of preserving their hunting grounds. But that's uh, legislation has to change in the territory to achieve that because uh, the legacy there is that all roads become public because the infrastructure was so little to begin with.
0: Absolutely fascinating. Well, Colin McClelland, senior staff writer at the Northern Miner, thank you for joining us and sharing your thoughts on your fascinating site visit to Yukon on the Northern Miner podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Adrian. Take care now.
0: And a big shout out and thank you to Colin McClelland for sharing his experience going up to Yukon, that beautiful part of the world, and all of the challenges and opportunities that that region faces in the natural resource industry an area that i think we're going to hear more about with huge potential also coming up we have the canadian mining symposium on october 12th and 13th simply go to events.northernminer.com to reserve a ticket and to learn more about the incredible lineup of speakers if you want to help the podcast out please leave us a review in the apple podcast directory share it with your friends and until next week take care